All right, so we're just beginning precepts class number seven. And we just finished our 10 minutes of free writing where the prompt was looking back through the first half of the year journey of precepts. What do you feel like you have clarity about? And what is there still confusion about? Anyone, would anyone like to, to share any tidbits and see if others uh, feel the same way or differently before we get into our precept? Clarity, confusion, all muddled together. Yes, Leslie. So I've, I've been doing a lot of things, including the uh, Operato Intensive a couple weeks ago. So I feel like I'm getting pretty clear on you know, that it's giving my myself permission to do nothing, be quiet, be silent, um, meditate. Um, the part that I'm still cloudy that still keeps happening is what, what happens when I get triggered. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting better about, you know, getting triggered and, and getting, you know, having all the emotions. And sometimes I can slow down enough to, anyway, but most of the time, it, it'd be nice not to get triggered. So that, that's the part that I'm focused on. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we could just, for once and all, banish the triggers? Does anybody else relate to that one? Yeah. I'll, uh, or, or can I, can I throw one in? Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm coming to this as a serious study about, you know, adopting this path, right? And um, I also come from a background of religious trauma. <laughs> so for me, uh, I like what I hear and I, I like the practice and I love the Sangha and it resonates with me in such profound ways. But I'm also afraid of, um, I guess what I'm, cloudy about I mean what I what I'm clear about is this is this this is right this makes sense it doesn't just make sense here it makes sense for me to be doing this this practice but I think what I'm cloudy about is what is it that makes Buddhism and Zen Buddhism different in a way that um that I can trust it. <laughs> I, I don't know how to say it other than that. Uh, I mean, I know that people are people and anytime you have people involved, there, there can always be some kind of shenanigans, right? Um, but I mean, really, uh, I, I don't, I don't want to go back into a, a religious or a spiritual space where there's, you know, using thing, using the the knowledge or the practice against one another or, or, uh, you know, diminishing other people or marginalizing or controlling or any of that kind of stuff. And so that's the part that I'm still not clear uh, enough about. Uh, and, and part of that is my own crap, right? Like, I know that even if everybody, like, even if I saw how 
how it is, I, I probably wouldn't fully believe it because I'm working through some of that. But is, is there anything different about this path that makes it less corruptible? Mm. Uh, <laughs> and the answer can I, be no, and I can go back to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was Norman Fisher that says that, you know, one byproduct of this practice is it makes denial impossible. Mm -hmm. Right? You can't, you can no longer fool yourself. So, you know, humans are humans, and uh, Zen centers have plenty of history of transgressions, even in, especially in the United States. So there's no, there's a human issue, right? Where the Sangha is composed of humans and you know, you're going to have good and bad actors. Um, but I think we have a slight advantage in that, you know, the process of meditation and, and the impact it has on the wiring of the brain makes it harder to fool oneself, you know, to deny what you're doing and the impact you're having on the world. But obviously the transgressions prove that you can still do it. But that's the individual human looking at the practice and the religion of what's different to me the what came to my mind is this is the only one i found that is not trying to get you to believe something as a matter of fact it's taking the opposite path it's trying to get you to stop believing everything to stop making new beliefs and to tear down the ones you have so that you're just stuck there in a groundless space of wonder and curiosity and open to what might happen. That's my answer. Clarity, cloudiness. Um, so I'm feeling clear um, in uh, some of the previous precepts before the one we're talking about tonight, um, treating people on equal ground. This was, um, there was a lot for me to work on in this one. And um, well, the holidays, you know, make that one. <laughs> well, pretty. Yeah, rich. then we'll it call just, it's rich and fruitful work. <laughs> Actually, daily life shows me a lot about that in myself. And, and interestingly, too, in terms of treating people on equal ground, I tend to idealize people. So that's lifting people up, which means I'm putting myself lower, which means I'm, by doing that, I'm not really following or, you know, the path of this precept. So you know, equalizing, you know, doing less idealizing, more, you know, appreciating myself, you know, equalizes that in terms of that precept too. So that, that feels clear. Um, and um, the other one had to do um, with equal ground and treating people with, with openness and possibility. Um, 
And um, I, I think I feel clear about that, trying to start with myself too, although that's harder, uh, with everyone um, just at this moment and that anything is possible going forward without thinking of, you know, the history that I might have with that person. That's um, cloudiness is our current work tonight. And that, you know, it's such a huge um, topic. And um, I did actually quite a bit of writing on it, but I don't think I feel any clearer in my um, relationship with sex. Um, and um, I uh, got, I ran up against my perfectionism and getting upset with myself about that. So um, just accept. Clear. That's it. You yeah, yeah right. I should know this. I'm sorry, say that again, Tom. I said, I sh you're feeling you should know this. You should be clear already. Something wrong with you? Yeah, that's a big one for me. And um, with in, in general, just I should know, I should do, I should have it all together. And it trips me up all the time. Um, so um, I don't know that there's a precept on that particular issue, but it's one of mine. And yes, and I and I it hit me up with this this one on on sexuality. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, why don't we move on and get into it? Yeah, this one is uh, speaking, speaking of rich and fruitful, right? This is one that um, I think most often is challenging as we go through the year. This is one of the most challenging ones. <clears throat> so I take up the way of engaging in sexual intimacy respectfully and with an open heart respectfully and with an open heart. There's a long tradition in Buddhism and in Zen of uh, addressing this, right? Of, you know, we, I, I mentioned the, the challenge in this precept. Um, and part of that challenge is because of the primal, you know, energetic nature of it. But that also creates a great opportunity, right? Where else are we going to find such a primal and forceful example of greed and longing, right, and attachment? So it gives us plenty of ground to work, to see what we're doing, see how we're meeting these things and what we're up to. So if we start that way, like, oh, you know, there's a lot here, this is gonna be a useful one. Maybe it'll be a little bit easier. And there's a, there's a famous koan that um, kind of sums this up that's mentioned in the book. Why can't the clear-eyed bodhisattva sever the red thread? The red thread in Zen is a, a euphemism for passion, desire, you know, animalistic passion and desire, our human 
animal nature. <clears throat> Why can't the clear-eyed bodhisattvas sever the red thread? Clear-eyed, right? If we had clarity, if you could understand it, right? Then can it be cut off? Can't we rise above it? Not be affected by it? That's the timeless question. I'm going to read to you from John Tarrant from Bring Me the Rhinoceros. The idea here is that the red thread theme runs through everyone's life. The red thread is passion and sorrow, all the vulnerability and desire that link you to the world. The direction this thread takes in your life is only gradually observable over time. It is the color of blood, of fire, of sex, of intimacy. To connect, to help, to be of use in this world, you have to walk with people, right? You can't, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm gonna stop you and interject myself. You can't cut yourself off in the world, right? You can't rise above it, or you could, right? But uh, that's not the way. So going back to John, to connect, to help, to be of use in this world, you have to walk with people. You have to let them act upon you also, and you won't remain unchanged. Song Yan, who made this koan, was explicit about this. Sometimes he said, it's the red thread between your legs. Mm -hmm. So Terence pointing out that passion and desire are key ingredients to developing empathy for others. And that by contrast, those who invoke religious purity often end up missing the point. I take up the way of engaging in sexual intimacy respectfully and with an open heart. Sexual desire can rattle our thoughts and emotions, right? We were talking about triggers there, Leslie, you know, a few minutes ago, right? Well, this is, this can be really triggering, right? You can get your whole nervous system, your whole body, pulse, blood pressure, you know, everything activated. It's one of the most powerful energies we can experience. You know, and from science, we know it originates in the hypothalamus, right? Our ancient reptilian brain the same part that handles thirst and hunger, handles sexual desire. So fundamentally, you know, anatomically, it's part of the basic survival mechanism of our animal nature, along with food and water, the desire to procreate, the desire for sexual union. It's fundamental. And here's a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. The preservation of the species was a point of such necessity that nature had secured it 
at all hazards by immensely overloading the passion at the risk of perpetual crime and disorder. He's pointing out that it must be so important, such a basic necessity for us human beings to carry on, right, to populate. That nature secured it at all hazards, overloading the passion, even at the risk of perpetual crime and disorder that it causes. <clears throat> so what starts as a biochemical resonance that drives all of life gets processed by a more complex consciousness and then is refracted through our brain, through our cultural conditioning, beliefs, our, uh, all our ancient twisted karma. Right, So it starts out as this basic biochemical process, but then it bangs and slams against our religious upbringings, what we've been admonished not to do or to do, and what we believe about ourselves. And it's hard not to get all wrapped around the axle and confused about what to do with it. So it's an ex one of the experiences we can have the most confusion about. It can be fraught with uh, cultural opinions and with the same thing being viewed very differently, you know, in the East and the West, uh, with religious views about what it means, about what's uh, allowable and what's not. Our own beliefs and our own self-imposed restrictions. So this is one of the reasons why it shows up in the precepts and it shows up in these spiritual practices is um, it's stressed for anyone hoping to cultivate a clear mind, right? What was the saying? I think it was Jack Cornfield's teacher that used to say, you know, you think you're so enlightened, right? go home and visit your parents. You know, I think of this in a similar way. You think you've cultivated a clear mind and you've risen above it. Just get triggered by that sexual someone you have the longing for and see how clear you are. <clears throat> so it's rich. And depending on how we work with it, you know, this biochemical reaction that starts can lead to deep intimacy, you know, connection and union, or escapism, using it using the partner as an object to escape our daily life or our fears or thoughts and like a drug. Or it can be used as an abuse, a power play. All starts in the same part of the brain. So the one thing we know 
as if if we are to have any hope of taking action with clarity and freedom, we must face passion. I mean, let's face it. We're not going to sever it. We're not going to rise above it. In monastic environments, this uh, this precept is often worded in such a way. You know, here we're we're wording it as engaging respectfully and with an open heart, right? But often in monastic environments and many other religions, it's more of worded to encourage celibacy right. as a restriction. Here, we're, we're thinking about it as a way of meeting it respectfully and openly. We don't hope to quash it. We must investigate it and know it so we aren't confused by it. It's the same process as uh, Joko's thought labeling and learning our own background conditioning and our own story making, the way we meet our experience. The better we are at recognizing our patterns, right? The less we're gonna be caught by them and confused by them. And so we study this passion to see how it bubbles through us, how it triggers us. <clears throat> Going back to John Tarrant. Desire burns at the core of life and it's usually complicated. If you love me, then I don't love you, as Carmen sings. One spiritual solution to desire is to flee it. The idea is non-attachment, transcending the body and its feelings. An intellectual form of taking a cold shower. <clears throat> but trying not to think about what you want sets up an inner conflict and is not the same as freedom. Desire might be handled in another way, as a given. What you want is a portion of the world rising out of nothingness to meet you. It has its own purity just by existing. It's as real as the Sydney Opera House or a wombat. You can't transcend a wombat. Perhaps desire is necessary for I'm life. sorry, Todd, the what? Can't a transcend? Wombat. A wombat. He's just bringing out two things that are real life. It's as real as Sydney Opera House or a wombat, the animal. Uh oh. <laughs> you can't transcend a wombat. Perhaps desire is necessary for life and fundamental to empathy. You might find freedom by going toward the disturbing force rather than away from it. There is nowhere outside the body you can live. So you might find freedom within the body. Right, so he's very clear, a similar admonition, a warning to not try and transcend it. Um, I just had an 
a thought of, and I like to tell you who, who says what or where they come from, but you know, over the years, they're all just mixed together in my head. <clears throat> I think it was Barry Madgen, who's one of Joko's heirs and a psychologist, psychotherapist, that says, you know, the issue with uh, transcending things or the problem with it is not that you can do it, it's that you can almost do it. Looks like you can. You can only think you can almost get there. But then <laughs> when you can't, the fall's much higher and much higher. <clears throat> so perhaps we shouldn't even start. Let's not get on that wagon thinking we're just gonna transcend things. Here's another expansion from, from Ken Jones. Typically the self makes one or other of two kinds of response. On the one hand, it may seek gratification by a mindless immersion in desire, right? Let's just go in, let's party, let's desire. <clears throat> On the other hand, in a common spiritual response, it makes seek to repress desire virtuously and righteously controlling it by means of ethical commandments and precepts enforced literally and absolutely. Tarrant observes that the red thread is always tangled and resists the simplification of life into formulae. Erotic connection turn, turns life upside down. And when life is too tight, Turning things upside down can be a good thing. This koan resists the totalitarian impulse in spiritual paths. Everyone has some sainthood possible, and the unfolding of their goodness might sometimes be through transgressions, through what is wild and imperfect in them. The point of this koan might be found in truly living your life rather than living it perfectly. So we're talking about our response to desire. Religious background about desire, right? The trap of transcendence or almost transcendence and kind of the, the yin and yang or the two poles of those. Run toward it, run away from it. Either way, there's no escape. Maybe we should just stop running. I don't know. I've got a question, I guess. Uh, it, in, in the readings, I, I didn't hear, and clearly I could have missed it, but I, I was just looking for more acceptance of the red thread. And you know, or instead of putting it down or uh, avoiding it, it seems like the Buddhist way to me is to is to accept it. Yeah. And, 
and deal with it. And and the dealing with it is the hard thing, I think. But the I, I for in in reading it, I guess I didn't I didn't see a lot of uh, acceptance, and that's what uh, again my whole I guess theory of, of Buddhism and the precepts is is you know doing the right thing and 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 accepting you know because kind of accepting things and, and going from there. Uh, I don't know if I'm missing something or. Uh, yeah, I don't think we're saying anything different. I think I'm, I'm emphasizing where we start and that people often get caught in the false dichotomy that, you know, there's one of two choices to be made and kind of um, trying to dissuade people from that idea that there's not a dualism here. And where it's going is it's going to be there. And so how do we start to accept it and start to work with it? So I think we're going the same place. I was just really emphasizing the, the false dichotomy that a lot of people don't ever get past to start working with. But I think you're right. I don't think there's as much um, talk about acceptance in this chapter, but I, I do think it's there. It maybe she's, you know, at this point in the book, kind of taking it for granted. But um, yeah, let's let's keep let's keep that in mind as we keep going. I think and see if it if it if you start to hear it or not, and then we can discuss it. <clears throat> so. There's an old koan about the old woman burning down the thatched roof hut. There was an old woman who oversaw the lodging and food of a spiritual hermit living high in the mountains near her cottage. Each day, she trekked up the mountain to bring him food and to see that he had what he needed to support his meditation. After many years of doing this, she decided it was time to test his understanding. So she sent her lovely young granddaughter this time to bring him his food. She also instructed the young woman to entice him by resting her head on his lap and to ask him, how's this? So one cold, rainy morning, the girl made her way up the mountain and entered the hermit's hut. She gave him his food and then rested her head on his lap, asking, how's this? The hermit jumped up and turned away quickly, expounding the words of a poem. The withered tree is rooted in bitter cold. During these winter months, no heat rises, no life. He then pushed the girl out of the hut into the cold rain without even a cover. Returning to her grandmother's cottage, the girl relayed the hermit's behavior in the hut. The old woman exclaimed, 
fat good for nothing to think I've supported him in his practice all these years. And this is the extent of his understanding. There's not even an ounce of compassion in him. The old woman traveled once more up the mountain and set fire to the hermit's hut, thus sending him down the mountain and into the world. This koan appears in, in, you know, tons of the books and collections. You'll hear that one a lot. And it keeps getting passed down as, as a warning, right? To try and quash your desire and deny its existence and to be cold is not only denying yourself. He couldn't even meet the young woman where she was at. It doesn't mean he had to you know, act on it, but to have some compassion and sensitivity and humanity in what was in front of him, rather than just you know, an initial reactive belief system that thou shall not. So we have to learn how to meet this. We have to, as Mitch was saying, accept that it's there and try and find some clarity about um, how we meet it in the world and how we meet it in ourselves. Engage with it out of greed or manipulation or power play or anger can result in suffering, devastating suffering has been, that's been made much more visible and apparent in the last three or four years, right? With the societal movement to try and raise awareness to the damage that it does. And on the flip side, engaging it with honesty, sensitivity, and an open and giving heart can result in a deep intimacy, one that's not available in many other ways, a rare and deep intimacy. And so <clears throat> Diane Rosetto takes us into it more deeply by saying, the way to work with this precept is not to determine the correct behavior, the correct behavior in every situation. But it's an inquiry to inquire deeply into the ways to use this powerful energy. And one of her, one of the ways that she says is most useful to try and learn this is to start thinking about what misuse looks like, right? If we have trouble deciding what is the highest and best use look like, if that seems cloudy to us, well, let's talk about the opposite. What does misuse look like? So that's a key way we can discover this precept is to explore what it might mean to misuse 
sexual intimacy. While true intimacy means standing openly with ourselves and others, misusing intimacy relates to separation. It, it always somehow comes back to relating to separating ourselves from the other. Whether that's simply thinking about what we want, what our needs are above anything else, creating a story which creates a separate self and the other as an object of our desire. She's asserting that most of the time, misusing intimacy somehow relates to separating ourselves from others. And that even in the most intimate embrace, even in the most intimate union, depending on its approach, it's possible to be distant and disconnected. Perhaps you're just performing an act with an object, one that you've coveted. So we need to look at the connection. We need to look at, at how we're defining self and other and object. Also, she says, anytime we use sexual energy to escape or alter our experience, our present mind state, we're avoiding life as it is. Anytime we use sexual energy, energy to escape or alter our experience, that is our present mind state, we're avoiding life as it is. Right? If, we, if you're using it to try and change the way things are, that's a red flag, that's a warning. If we perceive ourselves as separate, this is a misuse of the energy. But working with this precept can help us understand our patterns of thinking and feeling related to sexual intimacy. <clears throat> so we need to put it into practice. We need to, as we've done with all the other precepts, go through the process of awareness, of deepening, engaging the observer, and that's where she's going with it. Um, so I think you're right, Mitch, while she doesn't talk so explicitly about acceptance, her focus is on, well, it's there, what do we do with it? You know? <laughs> so we're gonna, we're gonna try and find our patterns of thinking and feeling related to this powerful energy. You know, one that maybe we're, using it to escape loneliness or to distract or to do, avoid um, numb feelings or bad feelings. And it, exactly one of the 
the most common misuse that she talks about stems from the avoidance of loneliness. Whether engaging in sexual intimacy to feel connected or whether postponing and avoiding it to avoid rejection. Right, both of them are because of the false view of separation. Stephen Mitchell in the Tao Te Ching says, hope and fear are both phantoms that arise from thinking of the self. Hope and fear are both phantoms that arise from thinking of the self. If you don't see the self as self, what do you have to hope or fear? So that's not in the book. That just popped in my head, but <clears throat> it seems similar to me. You know, avoidance of loneliness to feel connected or postponing, avoiding intimacy for fear of rejection. They're all somehow kind of bound up in because we're maybe a bit too self-concerned. That's the, that's the parallel that popped in my head. And the author, Diane, talks about, you know, gives a specific example herself about her, her loneliness during her um, post-divorce and raising her children. And, and that as she studied it, she, she noticed how that for her, she wanted to fulfill this yearning to be wanted to be wanted by someone who had to choose her. Not, I mean, she was surrounded, she was lonely, but she was surrounded by her family, parents and children, but none of them chose her. They just had to be there. She had this yearning, wanted to be, to be wanted by someone to choose her. All right, I'm gonna pause for a minute before we start talk about putting it in practice and give you guys a chance to reflect or see what you think. Opinions, confusions. Maybe I'm just tired of talking for a while and take a drink. <clears throat> Maybe I'll just forget. Go ahead. I was, I was just going to ask. So this is um, it's hard to really understand. I guess if we're we're focusing on non-attachment, right? Like that, if a non-attachment is the the practice, and yet this is something that um, this kind of intimacy, like builds attachment right to to at least one other person right mm -hmm. and so um and and often the progeny of that right that relationship you're attached to them so i mean there is this 
kind of, um, I mean, it's like we're making we're making it harder for ourselves, right? By to be uh, to be unattached to me. Yeah. Making harder. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure I understood where you're yeah. going. Yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, I I totally get the idea that we don't want to like this is who we are, right? We're physical beings. We have this. It's innate. But to um, to to confront this and i don't mean confront it in a bad way i mean to to face this to be have it a part of who we are and and then also to be in relationship you know with another person or other people you um like you're not you're not going to get away from that unless you're doing it in the wrong way <laughs> you're not going to get away from that kind of intimacy without forming serious attachments so um, what's the right way of thinking about that? Well, well, I don't think our goal of our practice is to avoid attachments. Mm. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I know, I know why you're saying that and because right. Buddhism talks about it kind of in that way, but I don't think that's how it's to be taken. Um, we just don't want to get attached to our attachments. We want to hold them lightly, right? We want, we want to see them clearly. Who? Norman Fisher says, you know, a good Buddhist practice, I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember this stuff, but a good Buddhist practice, one that's rooted in the teachings makes us much more human, not less so. One that, that can love and desire and cry and weep and wail with no confusion in it. Just love, just desire, just tears, just grief. And when it comes, it comes. In the Tao Te Ching, they describe the master. What a master looks like. Things arise and she lets them come. Things disappear and she lets them go. When her work's done, she forgets it. That's why it lasts forever. The attachment is, is in the attempt to, I'm sorry, the negative attachment that you're referring to is in the attempt to grasp life to solidify it, to stop it, to slow it down. No changing. Don't let it go away. Don't let it, the bad come. Right? It's not in living it. It's in resisting it. Thank you. Thank you for speaking up. So I'm not the only one speaking. Yes, Rosemary. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say I appreciated your your acknowledging this. It's a challenge to to talk about and to um, um, grapple with. And um, I think for me, um, coming from a very Catholic background, growing up, and um, 
a family. Um, this wasn't, you know, nobody was discussing, well, it was the 50s, nobody was discussing this. Um, and um, I, I don't think I've ever been in a, a group discussion about it. So, um, ever. So, um, thank you for saying it's a challenge. Um, validating my experience. <laughs> All right, let's move on. <clears throat> so putting it into practice <clears throat> where the rubber meets the road. <clears throat> So like we do with all the other practices of working with the precept, we begin with awareness. Begin with awareness of physical sensations. And specifically, in this precept, physical sensations of that sexual force, that sexual energy. We begin in the body. That's where we start. We start in the physical world. Um, okay, I was, I was like, oh, there's something. I was putting a connection together. Something that happened earlier. It was about what Leslie was saying at the very beginning about being triggered. Right? So it's like that. It's like the being triggered. Where you, when you're triggered, where do you begin? You, you, you go all the way back to the physical world. That's where you spend your time. That's where you start when you're triggered. What does it feel like? What does my chest feel like? What does the blood flow in my head feel like? You know, my stomach. So it's a similar kind of thing. I, I didn't get to say that earlier when you were talking about it, Leslie, but you know, the practice, triggered practice, come back to the body, spend a lot of time in the body. And then it, it'll follow the same path we're going to go here about starting in the body and then deepening and going into thoughts, beliefs and things, but same kind of thing. So we began the body. She, of course, you know, invites you to sit quietly and still to bring awareness to the body, to do a body scan. And then uh, like what would be called a probe in Hakomi, right? You're gonna throw a little pebble into the pond my dogs are coming and going and <clears throat> throw a little pebble into the pond. So she instructs you to bring in an image, bring into image, you know, any word, sense, or image that excites you sexually. And then notice immediately, do you judge that image, word, or thing as good or bad or indifferent? What judgments do you have about it? Notice any changes in the body, your respiration rate, pulse, blood flow, you feel flush, or maybe you feel nothing. Maybe you feel dead inside. Maybe you wonder why you don't feel anything. We're just noticing. We're bringing this non-judgmental awareness, you know, the mind of the observer to what happens. 
And then we deepen this body scan, progressing through various bodily areas, um, you know, working from head to toe. Are there any parts that are different? Are there parts of your body that you can't feel that are missing? And then continuing our awareness practice, moving from the body to notice any feelings we have, any fear or shame, anger or hurt. It's a process of inquiry. Its power isn't in judgment, but exactly because it does not have judgment as its goal. That's why it's useful is because it does not have judgment as its goal. This awareness, this inquiring mind seeks no answer. It is bare discovery. Bare discovery. <clears throat> and then as a result of this, we can bring into awareness what thoughts and beliefs we associate with sexual energy. We can start to see those judgments. You know, do we feel fear? Do we feel shame? What emotions come up? What thought reactions we have? That's step one, awareness of physical sensation. Step two, deepening the inquiry into daily life. We bring the same process of bare discovery of non-judgmental mind and awareness into our daily experiences. What sorts of reactions do you have to different situations that might carry this, this energetic tone? You know, as you see people on the street or the grocery store, attraction and aversion, judging mind. It brings out your personal experience with sexual energy. What attitudes and judgments do you hold towards yourself? What attitudes and judgments do you hold towards others? You know, perhaps you see someone uh, in public that you find attractive and you immediately think, oh, I shouldn't be attracted to them. They're such a different age than me or they're such a different whatever than me, race, color, creed. These probes, we bring these, these um, we use daily life as our Hakami probe that's dropping the pebble into our pond You know, every time we turn a corner and try and notice what's up, what are we up to? In this process, give yourself permission to think and feel without judgment. We're looking for patterns, patterns of how you meet your experience. It's the work of exploring the ways in which we may use this energy to reinforce our patterns, our self-identity that cloud what actually is. This is Suzuki Roshi's idea of self. You like his books, you read his books. That phrase is throughout all of them, the idea of self. 
we can use this precept to see how we spin out the fantasy of a separate self by using sexual energy, right? When you see the other, it triggers that. What idea of self does it reinforce in you? Oh, I'm too old for them. I'm too X, Y, Z now. <clears throat> So what are your thought reactionary patterns? How do you meet this energy? What's your ancient twisted karma? Your conditioning. Put simply, who do you think you are? And finally, in kind of the, the third phase or third step, we began to hopefully uncover our attitudes and core beliefs, as Joko would say. We began in the body, and then we engaged the observing mind to uncover what takes place in, in the mind around sexual energy. And then next, we deepen the inquiry to how our attitudes about sex can be used to reveal deeply held beliefs. So the questions you can ask yourself, what thoughts, what thought patterns do you notice? What emotional patterns do you notice? Do you connect sensuality with a specific thought or emotion? What beliefs or core beliefs about yourself or other you, might you have? Do you connect this with closeness? With power? Is it a power thing? Is it a status thing? With love? Do you connect it with safety? Who only really knows? It's uh, for you to discover. <clears throat> so that is engaging in sexual intimacy respectfully and with an open heart. I like, um, Diane often has her students reword the precepts in their own words, however they like. And um, part of that, for those who are interested in doing the, the precept ceremony for basically form at the end of this process, we'll talk about it more as we get closer. It's, a, it's voluntary. Um, but for those who, who want to go through a ceremonial way of saying, yes, this is what I want to try and do, we do the same thing. We'll, we'll ask you to before you go through that process to write these precepts in your own terms and what it means for you. And here's one that's in the book that she put in from one of her students about this precept. I take up the way of stepping into sexual intimacy, not only naked in body, but in heart. I take up the way of meeting the craving as well as the fear of the craving. Mm. 
the desire for closeness as well as the fear of closeness, the greed for power as well as the fear of power, the escape as well as the union. Any thoughts or reflections about this precept? Any questions or things that are bubbling around? Well, I have something that's sort of come up. Um, I'm reluctant to bring it up at all, but I started thinking about it when you mentioned um, that this is initiated in the hypothalamus. And I believe that to be the case when I conjure an image of something I find attractive over luring. But I've also had the experience, for instance, when I'm in an embodied state and I encounter another person, typically um, in close physical proximity, but not necessarily. I mean, if I'm doing meta, for someone across the country, sometimes that their energy resonates and um, you get like an energetic read for lack of a better word um, or interconnection, which usually takes place in the heart or the solar plexus or something. But I've also had the experience of an energetic read on people in a way that I would define as sexual. And, um, and I'm curious as to whether this happens to other people. And I don't question whether I've got thoughts and judgments in reaction to that, but, um, but it's kind of a surreal experience and I couldn't not mention it. Well, I, for one, have to just admit that um, I don't think I understand what you're talking about, so I'm not sure I can answer, but maybe others are following you and have that experience. Yeah, for sure. And what's really interesting is it isn't even like it can be somebody that I know, it could be somebody that I just see, and it's not everybody, and there's no... It does, there's no apparent rhyme or reason. <laughs> it's not like there's a type. It's not like there's a gender. It's not like there's anything. There's just certain people. Then suddenly I'm like, I have this reaction to. And I, I, I have often wondered about it. And, and I'm like, where is that coming from? And why am I having that reaction? And I'm sometimes I feel like it may be reciprocated. Other times I feel like it's they're completely clueless. I don't know. I, but I, I have had a similar, I don't know if it's the same thing, but a similar kind of experience. And um, I don't know. I always just say, oh, I must have known them in a past life or something. Because why else would I just have this reaction, right, to a, to a person that I, in some cases, don't know? Or in other cases, uh, I'm, I'm not even close to interested to pursuing anything up here like like I don't want to be in any relationship with that person but there's this energy there yep and thank you for uh for actually speaking about it Heather 
appreciate it. Mitch, were you, Mitch unmuted here. I was waiting to see, are you gonna say something if not Rosemary's ready? I was gonna say something here. Sometimes I get that same feeling. It's just looking at somebody and seeing, I, you know, I don't know, just getting aroused by seeing someone, I think. I, I don't. And for me, the problem is communicating with that person and not, you know, for me, it's, it's I guess, becoming aware of it. And I guess in the past, it would be trying either to make a connection or, or avoiding all, avoiding it altogether all or running away from it. And I guess trying to understand the precepts again in, in addressing it, I guess at this point, I just want to accept it, that it's there and I don't want to run away from it anymore. I, I don't necessarily want to take any action either, I don't think, but, but I don't want to put a judgment on it, I don't think. And I think that's what I've done in the past is, is get that feeling and, and then judge it. And I may judge the person, I'll judge myself. And I think that's something that I guess I have to deal with, but also uh, it's just it's just another way to I think it, it, you know maybe hopefully this is going to provide me another way to to look at it and accept it. I'm done. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, Rosemary. I uh, yeah, I was just going to say um, the. Um, observations that Diane was recommending and, you know, um, all of the, oh, it was seeking no answer. That's the big challenge for me, mm -hmm. um, is not to be looking for um, what it means or, um, you know, ju just stopping at the observation for now anyway. Right. And because uh, it seems like this precept and probably all of them will be um, seeping into us for a long time. Um, and I was just talking to one of our other Sangha members, uh, Maria in the UK, and in what they they stay in this precepts group year after year after year, continuing to look at them. And that that also felt very reassuring. Um, because the idea, I know that we're doing this in 10 months or 12, it doesn't mean that, you know, okay, you've, you've got it and it's, but, um, you know, I might put that on myself, you know, to uh, get it in 10 months or 12 months or whatever. But anyway, uh, yes, yeah, seeking no answer. That's um, practice edge, I guess. Mm -hmm. We've all we always done the same thing here at at Upamata and Austin about the continuation of the precepts. Um, before we did the the generosity model, um, you know there was a sizable fee to do this, and but 
once you signed up, you were invited back every year. And many people take it a few times. So they'll take it one time and then they'll come back a couple years later. And um, so it is, it is a, a process that takes some time. Well, that's not a good way to put it. <clears throat> It'd be better to say that it always yields more fruit, even if you think the tree's been picked. <clears throat> because we change. Right. Our understanding changes and our brain changes as we continue to sit and our, what we can observe becomes better. Our ability to go through it becomes deeper. Okay, one last thing and then we're wrapping up. So given that it is mid-year, um, part of our process is going through the learning record. So hopefully um, you haven't forgotten completely about the learning record, right? And that uh, hopefully every month or you're trying to make these observations of um, what you're experiencing in life and how you're meeting it. And part of the learning record, and we haven't looked at it a while, for a while, but there is these part B1 and C1. So these are to be completed halfway through the course. And we're just about there. This is a good time for you guys over the next week or two to do part B1 and C1. These are opportunities to take stock. Um, so you go back and you review all the evidence so far, the evidence being the observations that you've made, the detailed observations you've made in the work samples. Or, and then in part B1, you're going, there's a little process to try and interpret it, to try and see what you interpret, what you've made of, of the first six months of your, your observations and your learnings. And that's done in, um, in the terms of the dimensions of the weight of awakening, which are the end, end of the learning record. If you've forgotten what those are, there's dimensions of awakening. So you can use those as your prompts to try and help you interpret what you're seeing. And the aspirations for learning in part C1 that you, as you express them at the beginning of the course. So this won't take you long, you know, might be good to take half hour, 40 minutes at some point in the next week or two and go back and take stock. This is why we do the learning record. It's because um, we tend to forget all the little observations that we've made, little insights that we've had and uh, think they amount to nothing. But if you go back and, and see the arc of them, you might have a different feeling. And if you haven't been doing many observations, then this is a good time to realize that, you know, you still have halfway to go. And if you make the observations on the second half, you'll, you'll get to see the second half of the arc. So that's it for tonight. Thank you for joining us and, and for your willingness to engage in this uncomfortable and challenging topic. Um, you're speaking up and you're offering your reflections, I know is so, so helpful to everyone else. And it really 
makes the process. So thank you for your, your willingness and your courage. And I think this is the hardest one. So if you survive this one, you'll probably survive the rest of them. <clears throat> All right. Good night, everybody. We will see you next time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.